Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Triangle, episode four. Dirty Money, Here's How to Clean It, a novel by Ed Adams. Nothing leads south. At the Chelsea police station, Truman had been going through standard police procedures for this case. A cold-blooded killing more like an execution than any random violence. No sign of theft and no real crime scene evidence leading towards the killer. They had started using routine procedures to look at records for any similar crimes, seeking advice from police and army forensics about the style and precision of the wound that had been inflicted. There was nothing obvious except the view that this was a professional hit. Furthermore, there was no discernible motive and no witnesses. There was camera footage from the gallery, but the room where the crime took place had suffered a defective camera for the last day. The gallery owner had said they'd never had any trouble previously at the gallery and that the cameras in the entrance were the most useful for general surveillance. There was a call out to get the broken camera fixed, but the outfit repairing it had said it would be better to replace the unit, which appeared to have shattered inside. The repair was scheduled in time for the public opening, but not for the press preview. As a result, there was nothing captured of the crime, although they did have clear footage of everyone visiting the gallery on the day of the incident. They'd already combed the video for the entire day as well, and the nearby street surveillance of a bus lane, a jeweller's and a couple of fashion stores. Many of the people entering and leaving the gallery were recognised. They were employees or members of the trade press. After Lucin's entry, there had been a couple of further visitors, and shortly after the incident, a couple of people managed to leave before the arrival of the police, ambulance and others associated with the crime investigation. Everyone leaving tallied except for one person picked up on the bus lane camera getting into a BMW. They had a number plate for the car, but it was a fake, cloned from a Vauxhall Astra still on a dealer forecourt in South London. They were trying to trace the car's route, picking it up on other cameras, but even with congestion charge and traffic management cameras, it was a long and laborious process. Coupled with the other aspects of the killer's professionalism, they expected the car would have disappeared somewhere not far from the original scene. The passenger of that BMW was by now a long way from London. Driving from Deauville to the Côte d'Azur was a long journey across the whole landmass of France. The driver followed her satnav, but had pre-planned to use auto routes for almost the entire journey, taking a reasonably direct auto route bypassing Paris, Lyon, Valence and Aix, which was many hundreds of kilometres of driving. She briefly looked down at her Irish passport, which she would be using for this journey. Brophy. Amelia Brophy. After Paris, the road had cleared and she was making good time, staying within the speed limits to avoid being timed by the police on long sections between the tolls. Sometimes a route on normal roads ran parallel to the autoroutes. Still, she maintained her speed and focus on the journey, eventually pulling off at services ostensibly to refuel, but first parking in a row of mixed registration cars from Great Britain, France, Germany and Holland. She was looking for a blue Peugeot saloon and parked a couple of rows from it, but with a direct view towards it. She blipped another key on her keyring, seeing the locks on the Peugeot's car door rise and then fall again as she relocked the car. The next services with its adjacent hotel will be fine for the overnight stop, except she'd be in the blue car instead of the red one. Picking up the hotel envelope from the car, she walked across to the services shop, bought an apple and some bottled water, and after a few minutes' pause, made her way back to the parking lot and into the Peugeot. 
It was a diesel and had enough range to get her the rest of the way to Cannes without stopping. She sat in the car and looked at the envelope she'd pick up back in Deauville. Now she was far enough away to open it. To her surprise, there were two items instead of the one she had expected. The first was a photocopy of a banker's draft in Swiss francs for a considerable sum of money made out to her with her real name. The second was a photocopied sheet of A4 with a selection of photographs of Jake, a series of addresses and phone numbers. She realised the message she was seeing. She was not getting paid. Her target was still active and the person she had killed in the gallery must have been someone else. This situation was extremely irregular and increased her risks considerably. The only option was to finish the job. She would have to go back to London and repeat the mission, albeit with different arrangements. The risk increased because there would now be a degree of alarm and suspicion raised and the approach to the second assignment would need to be very different to avoid creating a visible crime footprint. She also realised that any failure to comply placed her in immediate danger, whereas completing the assignment would yield the large sum shown on the copied banker's draft. She weighed her options and decided to continue. She thought briefly about the choice of vehicles for the rest of the journey. No one knew she had left this car in these services. No one knew she had planned this vehicle swap. It was safest to stay with the Peugeot and to continue the journey. She picked up the cheap, garish Nokia phone from under the passenger seat of the Peugeot, held down the 2, which power-dialed the number beginning plus 31. After six rings, a phone operator-style voicemail cut in. She listened to the standard greeting and said yes one week and then hung up. She flipped the battery from the back of the cell phone, prized out the SIM card and walked to a nearby refuse bin. She deposited the remnants of her apple and then walking back to the car, dropped the SIM into a nearby curbside storm drain. As she approached the Peugeot, she stopped to look underneath at the tyres as if checking pressures. She was checking underneath for any signs of interference. She re-entered the car, flicked the ignition and smiled to herself as the car started. A few moments of fiddling with the new sat-nav and she was ready to leave. She pushed the defunct phone into the glove box and manoeuvred the car back onto the auto route, still heading southeast. Broken in. So Jake, what other things and why do you think there's still danger? asked Bigsy. I think we, no you, should take all of this to the cops and get the professionals onto this. If you are really in danger, then we should have the best ways to help. Let me finish. I didn't think any of this was that important until right now, said Jake. There's a difference between getting some sections together for a piece of low-key investigative journalism compared with having one accidental death followed by a murder of a friend right on the doorstep. Claire had finished transferring her list from the serial packaging to a sheet of paper. It was the same list as the original scribble, but now neatened and written starkly. It did seem to point towards a story. Jake continued to explain the Collins interview to Claire and Big Z. So the interview with Darren was supposed to be routine, he continued. Successful flyboy poser with big shiny wheels, except we are talking about almost Formula One prices for this car. It does over 240 miles per hour and there are only a few dozen variants in the world. But as the interview started, I could see that Collins looked rattled. It wasn't my questions or anything to do with the interview, but here we have Mr Successful, who was asked to be in our flaunt section, now stuttering over his words and seeming to be very disengaged. Claire and Bigsy exchanged a glance. So you knew he was freaked out about something. Did you ask him about it? asked Bigsy. 
Yes, I tried to, continued Jake, but initially Collins dismissed it, saying he got a big deal going down. Of course, I needed to ask him some background questions about his company and how he'd made his money, because it's not so apparent as a footballer hero or pop star. He gave me a bit of this and a bit of that type of line. My original assessment seemed right that he was a flyboy. Jake recounted this section of the interview. Collins had started in trading with perfumes and other market barrow boy items. He moved into a small and legitimate import-export business and then seemed to strike it rich with a few large deals where he appeared to be the middleman in large transactions. Jake wondered whether there was anything dubious, like drugs, along the way, but the basics seemed to be much more to do with conventional commercial intermediation. Yeah, he seemed to have a knack of making a turn on big trade deals between countries, continued Jake, but I couldn't see anything illegal in the basic story. Apart from the dodgy perfumes when he started out, hey, even the most august of today's rich and famous may have started pushing bootleg records or car aerials. Bigsy nodded and thought of a couple of well-known British millionaires. Jake continued, but partway through the interview, Collins says something very unusual. I can't remember it exactly, but it was along the lines that with him being successful and all, he had to take certain precautions. That was the only part of the interview where he seemed fully engaged. I took this to be posturing like a lot of pop stars have security and bouncers and so on. He said no, that there was more to it than that. He said that if anything were to happen to him, there was more than just financial insurance for him. That there was a special process. I took it to mean like a legal process to handle his affairs. That's when he said something odd. He knew my machine was running and he said, yes, I have a special code which I can stop the process. And then he gave me a number which at the town sounded like a, f a phone number. I looked at him surprised that he'd done this. He said, it didn't mean anything to me anyway, so what was the harm in telling me? He did look pointedly at my machine when he said this, though. I decided at this time to lighten up the conversation before we closed. Tricks of the trade always leave them feeling good. So I asked him some more questions about his car. It's a nutter, by the way. It goes so fast that it's practically unusable on British roads. The acceleration is like a fast motorbike. It has these really cool doors. They sort of swing upwards. Jake paused. He could see that Claire and Bigsy were taking in the main story and the piece about the car was an incidental distraction. And you know, said Jake, I've got the recording of pretty much all of this. The Arabs, the argument, the American and the interview with Darren Collins. It's back at my place and it's not bad quality. My little gadget boosts the volume during the quiet pieces, you know. I didn't even get to listen to it again because the story got cut. And then I had to go on that wild goose chase to Liverpool for the footballer story. So the next thing we need is the recording from Jake, said Bigsy. OK, said Claire, but we need to think first. And that includes thinking about getting the police involved and also about safety. I agree, although at the moment, by pure chance, no one knows I'm here at Bigsy, said Jake, whereas they may expect me to show up at my flat, the police station or my office. Call me chicken, but it might be better for me to lay low until we've heard that tape again, and then maybe to call the police when we have all of the evidence. I'll want to be taken somewhere out of the way if things are as bad as they seem. I also think the only person who would know all about me making the recording would be Collins. And I suppose other journos could work it out, but it's pretty unlikely that anyone is thinking about it. Yeah, said Bigsy, and it's funny that we still all call it tape when we all know that it's digital. Claire and Jake both simultaneously turned as if to hit Bigsy, who was ready to defend himself with the frying pan.